Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Last year I had a homiletics class that I didn't want to end. I didn't want it to end because of the dynamics of the students in that class. We had one student who used to work for Disney. His name was Brent. And it was amazing to see Brent's creativity. As Brent listened to the text of Scripture, he could imagine these worlds of God's grace. He would invite you into the halls of the kingdom where the walls would be resounding with joy. But sitting behind Brent and one seat over was another student named Frank. And Frank had worked for the opposite of Disney which would be death. Well, Frank didn't exactly work for death, but he sure hung around a lot where death had done its work. Frank used to be a homicide detective. One time he actually brought into class this uh, photo album, and it was unlike any photo album I had ever seen or ever want to see. It wasn't filled with pictures of a family vacation at Disney. No, it was filled with dead bodies. Frank had taught a course on wound identification. You thought Lutheran mind was bad. (laughs) Frank had taught a course on wound identification, and these were the photos of the bodies that he used to help people identify wounds. So I had Brent imagining life and Frank revealing death, real death. And I delighted in pitting these students off of one another. When when, uh, Brent could uh, ask us to imagine the worlds that God dreams for us, I could rely on Frank to wake us up back to reality and show us suffering and death in the world. And when Frank had imprisoned us in a world of suffering and death, I could run to Brent for an escape. Mr. Disney, sing us one of those songs of Zion. I had a great time in that class. I didn't want it to end, but I'm glad it did. Because if that class hadn't ended, I would be less prepared to preach to you from this text from Zephaniah. Because what I was learning in that class was to pit joy against sorrow. I had Frank for sorrow, and I had Brent for joy, and I pit them against one another as if faith in this world was a life of joy without sorrow, as if joy is the absence of sorrow, as if the only time you can rejoice, the only time you could celebrate Christmas is if there was no sorrow in your life. And yet that's not the joy that Zephaniah brings. Actually, that's not the joy in any of the texts. Our texts offer us joy today, but it isn't joy as the absence of sorrow. It's joy in the presence of someone who comes to you in the midst of sorrow. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippians, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Wonderful words of encouragement. And yet Paul is writing from prison. His hands are chained. 
but his heart is free because he knows that joy is not the absence of sorrow. Joy is the presence of his Lord with him in the midst of sorrow. John the baptizer there in prison sends two disciples to Jesus to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we wait for another? And Jesus sends those disciples back to John in prison with a song of joy from Isaiah on their lips. Now, if joy was the absence of sorrow, this is a cruel joke. John is dying in prison, and Jesus is out in the world singing for joy. But Jesus knows that joy is not the absence of sorrow. It's the presence of one who comes to you in the midst of the sorrow. And so he sends John a word that brings him the word, full of the joy of God in the midst of his sorrow. And the same thing, the same thing is happening in Zephaniah this morning. Now I will admit to you that I made the mistake of reading the whole book of Zephaniah before I preached from this text. I say it's a mistake, not because it's wrong to read the whole book of a text you're preaching from. That's kind of good if you can do it. It's a mistake because the rest of the book of Zephaniah, ooh, it is nothing like this text. You know, when you read this text outside of the book in chapel, why, it's easy to imagine a family vacation at Disney. There is joy ringing and running around the text. But you sit down and you read Zephaniah, it's like paging through Frank's photo album. There are dead bodies everywhere. Zephaniah starts with this opening declaration of God's judgment that God will sweep away. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. It opens with Yahweh saying that declaration, and then you begin to see the particulars as God comes and judges, and he wipes away priest and people, rulers and merchants, warriors and laborers. And then, like a nightmare, he keeps judging late into the night as Zephaniah sees Yahweh with a lantern walking through the streets trying to find more people to destroy. And there's this one picture of a sacrifice that is horrifying. Yahweh comes and offers his own sacrifice. Because his people have abused the sacrificial system that he gave them, Yahweh comes and makes a sacrifice of his own. Only this time, on that altar are not the dismembered parts of a bull or a lamb. No, this time on that altar are his people. He sacrifices his people in judgment, and the nations are gathered in horror at what God does. And then at the end of this horrifying photo album, you have this one little picture of joy. Now, if you take it out of the album, well, you can make up a vacation at Disney. Joy without sorrow, but Zephaniah wants you to see it in the album, because joy is in the presence of Yahweh who comes to you in the midst of your sorrow. Here, I think, is where um, we could have Frank help us with a little bit of wound identification. 
When you see those dead bodies, what do they tell you about Yahweh? Well, first, they tell you that he rules over all. His judgment affects all social classes, all nations, and it lasts for all time. You can't get away. Second, his power is overwhelming. He is the one who creates, and he has the right to destroy. But third, and here I would ask you to trust, to trust that God can use your imagination. Third, Yahweh is the one who is most fully present with you in the midst of his judgment. In that one photo of that horrifying sacrifice, I believe we get a glimpse of God with us in Christ. Yahweh sacrifices his people on the altar, and we know that Jesus is Israel reduced to one. Jesus is the embodiment of God's people placed on that altar in a sacrifice of God's judgment that takes away the judgment of God for all nations in the world. And that sacrifice, that sacrifice is horrifying. But it isn't the um, reluctant death of some begrudging victim. And it isn't, as theologians are telling you nowadays, it isn't some strange form of divine child abuse with God the Father killing his son. It isn't that at all. What it is, is joy and sorrow joined together in eternity in the self-giving love of a father and a son. It is the Son's sorrowful joy to give his life for you. And it is the Father's joyful sorrow to receive you on the arms of his dying Son. And that Son rises, and he ascends, and when he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, he still has those wounds. Father and Son, in joy and sorrow for eternity, for you. And the Spirit now speaks through Zephaniah and brings the presence of that God in your midst. That's what Zephaniah is rejoicing over. That's what Zephaniah is singing about. It's not joy in the absence of sorrow, but joy in the presence of Yahweh in the midst of our sorrow. The words, God is with you, runs like a refrain through this text. Zephaniah proclaims the Lord our God is in our midst. He is a mighty hero who saves he rejoices over you with gladness, and he quiets you 
with his love. He rejoices over you with gladness because he has taken his judgment away. And he quiets you with love because there's nothing that will ever separate you from him. Joy and sorrow eternally together in Yahweh for you. That's what we see in this text. Now, I agree it is hard to understand, but it's necessary. It's necessary as we prepare to celebrate Christmas, right? Christ with us. And as we prepare to sing joy to the world, well, what joy are you proclaiming? I I know a Christian woman who once didn't want to go to church. Now, she wanted to go to church. She just didn't want to go to her church. A year before that, she had suffered greatly in her life. Her husband died in an automobile accident, leaving her with two small children and one now very large house. And she called me up one weekend and she said, I was wondering if we could go to church. And I said, sure, what time are your services? And she said, well, I I don't really want to go there. I was wondering if I could go with you. And I asked her why. And she explained, she said that she didn't feel like she belonged in her church anymore. She had gone there and worshiped after her husband died, but she said, when I sat in that pew, I felt alone. Now, she felt alone because her husband wasn't with her, but she also felt alone because her church wasn't with her. It's as if I don't exist, she said. Her church had devoted a lot of time and money to create a worship space of praise. They had a praise band, They had a gospel choir. They had a pastor who gave up lifting messages that got people up on their feet with their hands raised in the air. Now, I am not criticizing contemporary worship here, so don't go there, because if you do, you're going to miss the point. I'm not criticizing contemporary worship. I am criticizing any worship that ever tries to give you joy by denying sorrow. Think of that woman when she had her husband and her two small children, she felt like she belonged. But now that sorrow had visited her home and began sleeping in her bedroom, she didn't belong. It's as if I don't exist. Why? Because her church gave her a joy without sorrow. They didn't give her the words. They didn't give her a place to name what was going on in her life, they didn't proclaim to her one who rejoiced over her with gladness and who comforted her with his love. I thought of her the other week here in chapel on a Tuesday. I hadn't thought of her for years, and I wished she was here in St. Louis because I could invite her to this place. I know, I know she'd be welcome. On Tuesday, as you know, we have this practice of offering our petitions before God in a very concrete and particular way. Either Dr. Burrison or a student assistant or a faculty member stands down there in the nave, and we offer up our petitions in our own voices, and he then takes them and places them before God. 
And as I was standing there, I was listening to the people that God had gathered in this place, and I heard the deep joy and the deep sorrow that was here. Deep joy at a positive response to chemotherapy. Deep joy at the birth of a child. Deep sorrow at a grandmother with dementia. Sorrow at a... uh, upcoming surgery at a miscarriage, and here we are bringing all of this joy and the sorrow in this place. Why? Because we know that we can bring this before God because we know and we trust and believe that God has come before us in Christ, taking away God's judgment. So now He rejoices over us with gladness, and He comforts us, He quiets us with His love a place for all nations because of the presence of Yahweh who brings joy in the midst of sorrow. (laughs) So I told you about that homiletics class. I didn't want it to end. I was pitting joy against sorrow, but I'm glad it did. And there are worship services out there that are pitting joy against sorrow. And there are people who don't want it to end, but I wish it would. Because then we would be prepared to receive the one Zephaniah brings to us, Yahweh, whose presence in the midst of the deepest sorrow brings us joy. And that joy, like the wounds on your Savior, that joy will never end. Amen.